Looking at the subject today in Genesis 18 of Abraham pleading for the righteous of Sodom. Maybe you don't think there's anybody there that's righteous, but you would be mistaken. Firstly, we understand from our bulletin outline there that God decides to disclose his plans to destroy Sodom. With the death angels on their way to Sodom, verse 16, God poses a question in his own mind, and the question is this. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? It's a certain reference to the outpouring of judgment that is going to befall Sodom and its wicked people. It is clear from the context that God then proceeds to give us, the readers, several reasons as to why he could not keep the destruction of Sodom a secret from Abraham. Reason number one, Abraham is about to become a great and powerful nation, verse 18. The geography of his nation will include Sodom and Gomorrah and the plains cities that are about to be annihilated from the face of the earth. I don't know if you know that, but there was more than Sodom and Gomorrah. There were a number of cities here in this particular area of the Jordan Valley. Abraham ought to know then that his future inheritance will not include these cities, will not include these areas, though they are there now. They will not be there for long. Reason number two, all nations on earth will be blessed through him. We have noted this particular phrase numerous times, and it is the promise of God to send the Holy Messiah through Abraham's ancestry it is not congruent, it is not compatible with holiness to abide the overt wickedness of Sodom. So those towns got to go. And then reason number three, verse 19. God has chosen Abraham with the full intent that he will, and I'm reading scripture, direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. But I say it this way, the wickedness of Sodom was no place to raise godly children. Just no place for it. But it was a place ripe for the justice of God to purge the Jordan plain of this great immoral city and all the other ones there. So God is striking at the epicenter of evil in the country of Palestine. These are all very good reasons as to why God would not choose to keep secret his intentions towards Sodom. But there is one other which I believe overshadows all of these. And that is that God acknowledged Abraham to be his friend. His friend. The writer of Chronicles asserts, O, o our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether by sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple 
that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. Second Chronicles 20, verses 7 through 9. The chronicler recognized that Abraham was the friend of God. When we come to the New Testament, James, arguing for the importance of living your faith, having a living, vibrant faith, asserts Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. James 3, verse 23. So we have a number of places, Old Testament, New Testament, where this is stated. If we bring this truth to bear upon the narrative today, is it not the underlying impetus for God's full disclosure of his intent to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and all the other wicked cities of the plains, that Abraham is his friend? Well, what about friends? Friends confide in each other. They are even willing to share the secret thoughts of their hearts which they would not otherwise (laughs) do or broadcast to the rest of the world. Notice how God reasons with himself. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Shall I hide from my friend what I'm about to do? Let the wicked be surprised by my judgment. But I cannot bring about judgment on a city in which Abraham's nephew resides without alerting Abraham to my plan. He's my friend. And by the way, when we get into the New Testament, it's the same principle. God tells us, God's people, about judgments coming, but he doesn't blab it to the world. Verse 10 gives us God's decision. Verse 17 Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Verse 20, no, I will not hide my intent. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, he's saying this to Abraham, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry. Now you read a text like this, he's going to come down and take a look and see and analyze it. This is what we call in Scripture anthropomorphic language. Well, that's a big word. <laughs> God's speaking in the language of man. Anthropos is the Greek word for man. Anthropology, the study of man. Right? Okay. So this is anthropomorphic language. Does God really need to come down from heaven to see if Sodom's wickedness merits the outcry? No, the outcry speaks for itself. And I'm going to talk about that a bit later. Okay, then, does God need to come down to investigate the people of Sodom to see if they are innocent or guilty of this great sin of homosexuality? Again, no, because God knows all things. So this is anthropomorphic. That is to say, God is speaking to us in a language that we will understand. God comes, he discovers, he analyzes so that we know the decision to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah is not a whim with God, that this has been thought out, that there is credibility to the evidence that they deserve everything they're going to get. 
in terms of judgment. The scripture says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. Where is he looking? Heart, mind. That's Jeremiah 17, verse 10. Again, in the Revelation, Jesus exposes the immorality of Jezebel, saying it this way, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. There it is again. And I will pray, repay each of you according to your deeds. Revelation 2, verse 21 through 23. And the writer of Hebrews puts it this way in 4 and verse 13. Nothing, nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's eyes, from His sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. And if you think that's bad, that God sees the overt acts of sinful men, it gets worse. Paul says, therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. Ooh, ooh, that is really scary. The motives. Not just the fact that you did something, but why you did it. You know, we see some of these atrocities that have been happening in our country, the murder of those people at Saint, uh, uh, South Carolina's uh, church. You know, they're all trying to get into this man's head. And what was he thinking and so forth? God doesn't have to worry about all that. He knows the motives. He knows what's going on. Oh, and there's one thing more here before we move on, and that is that because Abraham is God's friend, he knows God's intent. He knows God's intent. Look at verse 23. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now, I want you to think about this. All God said to Abraham initially was, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see. That's all he said. And from that simple statement, Abraham has surmised that God is about to unleash a judgment so terrible that it will sweep away, that's his words, those wicked cities. What is this? Well, it is this. Not only does God know Abraham, but Abraham knows that is very important. He knows that God's holy character is such that he cannot and will not permit Sodom and Gomorrah to promote its brand of wicked immorality with impunity. No, judgment is about to fall. Abraham knows this. And he is concerned that his nephew Lot will once again be caught up in the repercussions of Sodom's sin. 
putting it together. So God does disclose and begins to disclose to Abraham what his plan is for Sodom. Secondly, Abraham pleads with God to forego judgment for the sake of the righteous. Verse 24, Abraham said to God, well, what if? You ever ask what if? What if questions? There's a bunch of what if questions in this text. What if? There are 50 righteous people in the city. Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? What if? Oh, and without giving God a chance to respond, (laughs) Abraham presses his case saying, verse 25, Far be it from you to do such a thing. What? To kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham is doing more here than pleading with God to spare Sodom. He is reasoning with God that it would be out of God's moral character to treat righteous and God-fearing people with the same outpouring of judgment that befalls the wicked. Yes, judge the wicked. That's just. But it cannot possibly be just to have the righteous become collateral damage when the fireballs begin to fall from heaven. Wow. Abraham. Pretty bold. (laughs) Would you know enough about the character of God to be able to make an appeal like this concerning some disclosure God made to you? Could you argue with God and feel perfectly safe challenging his intended actions? Would you dare to pit your sense of right and wrong against God's and suggest that if God followed through and destroyed the righteous with the wicked, that would not be right. May I say that men ignorant of God and ignorant of God question his justice all the time. But they do so from the assumed position that they themselves know what is good and right and just. The bias and pride of men's hearts question God in an accusatory way to indict God for misconduct. But Abraham is not doing this. Abraham is appealing to God on the basis of God's own character. God's own sense of right and wrong, knowing full well that God does not place all mankind in the same bowl of soup. There are the righteous because of God's saving grace. There are the wicked whose father is the devil. And so it is as Jesus told the Pharisees, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. John 8 verse 44, and what was the devil's desire was to kill Jesus. And then Jesus said, Abraham did not do such things. 
What was God's response to Abraham's reasoning? Verse 26. If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. God did not ridicule Abraham for opposing this scenario. Spare the city if you can find 50. No, God agreed to Abraham's proposal. You see, if you argue with God on the basis of his character, Moses did this a number of times too. Remember when he was about to destroy all the Israelites because of their sin at the foot of Mount Sinai? Moses says, ah, ha, ha, ha. the Egyptians will hear about this. And they'll say, oh, that's some kind of God Israel has. He brought him out in the wilderness so he could destroy them. Then your name will be mud throughout all of the nations. If you know God's character and he reveals things to us, we can plead on the basis of his word. No, I won't destroy the place if I can find 50. Well, this encouraged Abraham to be a little bit more assertive. Well, what if you only find 45 righteous in Sodom? Verse 28. Uh, what if the number is only 40? Verse 29. What if uh, only 30? Verse 30. How about 20? Verse 31. You can see what's going on here. <laughs> he started out 50 and he's working down. And in every one of these scenarios, God responded saying, I will not destroy it for your sake. We get right down to 20. I won't destroy it. Well, uh, this emboldened Abraham to pose one more scenario. Verse 32, sensing that he may have worn out his welcome. Abraham says in verse 32, may the Lord uh, not be angry, but let me speak just one more time. Once more. Lord, what if only... Ten can be found there. Ten righteous. God agreed. And verse 33 tells us, when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. Wait a minute. How could Abraham go home, ending his plea with God, at ten righteous people? Well, I think he was doing the math. <laughs> Let's see now. Uh, Lot and his wife and the two unmarried daughters were up to four. The two sons-in-laws pledged to marry the daughters were up to six. Surely there must be four others somewhere in this vast city who had come to trust God through the outreach of Lot's family. One would have hoped that even Lot's own sons-in-law considered Lot to be joking when he encouraged them to flee for their lives before Sodom was destroyed. Chapter 19, verse 15. 
Abraham went to bed that night, assured in his own mind that his nephew Lot and Lot's family would act as the preservative necessary to fireproof the entire city of Sodom, but he was sadly mistaken. Sadly mistaken. You say, you mean to tell me a city can become so corrupt that you can't even find ten people in it that love the Lord and obey the gospel? Right here it is in our text. Brethren, if you want your friends and family to spend eternity with you in heaven, you need to do more than just pray for them. By all means, pray for them. But without faith, it is impossible for sinners to please God. And from where does saving faith come? Paul tells us, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. That is the gospel. Romans 10, verse 17. People have to be exposed to the message of Christ, the message of the gospel. Because hearing is one of the means that God uses to instill saving faith in people. Lot came across to his relatives as a jokester. Because somewhere along the way, he had not explained that people need to be saved from God's wrath. They need to come to God and seek salvation, which is only found through repentance of sins and faith in God as Savior. And if Lot were so convinced that Sodomites would be destroyed, why did he make his home in Sodom? So he's even sending the wrong message. He compromised his faith by living among the very sinners who had the mark of destruction upon them. He lacked credibility as a spokesperson for God. I mean, who would take him seriously about an impending judgment when he himself resided in Sodom City limits? Prayer without exposure to God's gospel is just wishful thinking. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. The word of God, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Hebrews 4. And it is that convincing conviction that drives sinners to Jesus for pardon and forgiveness. People must hear the gospel to be saved. And that's not the same, not identical, to praying for them. Yeah, I'm going to pray for them. Give them the word of God, give them the gospel, and then the spirit of God will move and use that word to bring about that kind of conviction that draws them to Christ. There is not a person, not a person, that is ever saved apart from the Word of God. Taught, preached, handed out in a tract, something. They've got to get the Word of God in them. So they're, because they're so full of their own words, <laughs> their, own, their own thoughts, 
occupy their mind. They got to start thinking God's thoughts. Well, that, how's that going to happen? Maybe they need to hear the gospel. Well, I look at this text and I see that there are tremendous lessons for the heart in this text. And that's the last part of your outline there. The first I would say is that in Christ, God treats us as his friends. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. John 15, Jesus gives us very similar parallel to what we have in our text. Jesus was about to have the judgment of God fall upon him as he was made sin for his people. His disciples had been with him through thick and thin and sometimes suffering the same animosity of the people that they had heaped on Jesus. There'd be no other way. So in John 14, 15, 16, those three chapters, Jesus' last words to his disciples before the judgment of God fell. But he refused to go to his death without taking his disciples into his confidence. We know that the understanding of the disciples about Jesus' death was sporadic at best. They didn't quite always catch it. How could Messiah be crucified? So the other times, they drew their sword, you remember? They're going to try to prick protect Jesus from being taken captive. So they knew, uh, but then they didn't know, you know? So Jesus explained, here it is, John 15. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Now note, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants. Well, why wouldn't you call us servants? Because, I'm reading, because a servant does not know his master's business. That's why. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father. I have made known to you. John 15, verses 13 14. How can I go to my cross without taking the disciples into my confidence? Without telling them the extent of the judgment that's going to fall. We know the disciples were confused. Some of them protested, Peter in particular. But my point here is that Jesus disclosed himself. He took them into his confidence. In John 10, speaking of his disciples as sheep, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. John 10, verse 14 and following. So using sheep to explain the family setting, Jesus assures his disciples that they know him, and he them. The very basis for friendship 
and interaction. And John writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. 1 John 4, verse 7. Let me say it this way. It is not presumptuous. It is not presumptuous on our part to say that we are the friends of God. I know the world probably would gulp at that. Say, well, you guys, who do you think you are? Well, one thing we're going to say about us is that we are the friends of God. I mean, we believe Him when He speaks. We follow Him. We love Him. We know His workings. And why? Paul words it this way. It is written, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him, but God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. He goes on, the Spirit searches all things, even the things of God. No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9 and 5. What he's saying is that the friends of Christ know what the Master's up. We do. And that might sound arrogant to the world. We're kind of claiming that be on an inner circle. Well, we are on an inner circle. We're the people of God, the friends of God, disciples of Christ, and many others, the sheep of his pasture, and on and on, many other symbols in Scripture. That is what we are. We're not boasting about that as though it were us, ourselves, that made it that way. We're boasting when we're bragging on Jesus. He brought us, the likes of us, I could say it that way, into his glorious family. That's a tremendous thing to learn from this text. Secondly, we can learn that God alerts us to his impending judgments, giving us time, this is very important, giving us time to warn our friends and relatives if they will listen. Do we really expect the unbelievers to heed warnings of impending judgment from God when they have not given a hearing to the many other teachings of Christ in the scriptures? Well, maybe yes, maybe no. God's grace must do its work before any unbeliever listens to any admonition from scripture. But the point in all this is that God alerts us, his people, and when we are forewarned, as the saying goes, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. In other words, a warning, if it's heeded, permits people to prepare for the worse, if they will listen, if they will. When God forewarns his people of the bad times coming, Teachings of Christ, Mark 13, 
When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in the Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those who will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. Mark 13, verse 14 through 19. What's this? Christ is warning. Warning his people. Bad things are coming. Be ready. And I'm giving you signs. Read the signs. When you see the signs, here's what you're to do. There is a day of trouble coming which is so serious, so horrendous, so imminent that it will rival Lot's warning to his family to flee Sodom. There will be no time to collect the necessities of life, clothes, shoes, food, just time enough to flee, to head for the hills literally. And only the discerning will acknowledge the danger and only those who heed will profit from the warning. The sons-in-law thought, Lot, you got to be joking. Fireball's coming, the city's going to be destroyed, it's going to be swept away. Yeah, right. We need to warn, that's our, our task. God told Ezekiel, if you do warn the wicked... And he does not turn from his wickedness or from his evil ways. He will die for his sin, but you will have saved yourself. Ezekiel 3, verse 19. Our task, warn, plead, encourage. The rest is up to the hero. Number three, we may learn that wickedness has its own voice that cries out to God for judgment. Wickedness has its own voice. God did not have to exit heaven and go on an exploratory journey to discover what was happening in the urban area of Sodom and Gomorrah and the plain cities. No one had to inform God of the immorality, the hatred, the rape, the murder that plagued that city. No, there was an outcry from Sodom that sang a sullen and depraved tune that reached the ears of God. You know, even we mere men and women know what's happening in our country's large urban cities, don't we? The rape, the bludgeoning of death to death of innocent people returning home from work for what? To rob them of a few dollars. The prostitution, the embezzlers in corporate America, the child molesters, the kidnappers, the street gangs, vandalizing property because they're bored. We know, we know, right? We don't like what we see, but we know. Doesn't God know? 
David knew. Here's David's prayer. Speaking of the wicked, he says, They repay me evil for good and leave my soul forlorn. Here's why. When they were ill, I put on sackcloth and humbled myself with fasting. And when my prayers returned to me unanswered, I went about mourning as though for my friend or, or a brother. I bowed my head in grief as though weeping for my mother. But when I stumbled, they, the wicked gathered in glee. Attackers gathered against me when I was unaware. They slandered me without ceasing. Like the ungodly, they maliciously mocked. They gnashed their teeth at me. Oh Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue my life from their ravages, my precious life from these lions. Psalm 35, verses 12 through 17. Yeah, David knew his, his community. He did. He sees, and I think he's sure that God sees too, because this kind of wickedness cries out to God for judgment, and God, while patient to a fault, can even become the enemy of his own people. Isaiah writes, Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin. Obstinate children, my children are obstinate. God sees it all. When I was a kid, the, um, the lowest of the low in the rank of kids, the lowest of the low in the totem pole, in our thinking, was to be a tattletale. Oh boy. Tattletale, tattletale. You're nothing but a tattletale. You told mom that I used your favorite frying pan to make mud pies. God needs no tattletales to inform him of evil that men do. Wickedness has its own voice that cries out. Since it cries out, then when judgment falls, it's the worst. Number four, we may learn that we should be concerned, you need to be concerned about, get it now, your spiritual family. When judgment is just around the corner and you need to plead, now your spiritual family, you need to plead for their rescue. Whatever compromises Abraham's nephew Lot had made to live in Sodom, and there were many, he was yet a righteous man and part of the kingdom of God. I would not know this. <laughs> I would not believe this. Apart from what Peter tells us in his epistle. Peter writes, he, speaking of God, he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen 
to the ungodly. And he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. For that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. 2 Peter 2, verses 6 through 9. Three times in this text, Peter identifies a lot as a righteous man. Really? Was Lot old enough? Was he learned enough to know that Sodom's environment would, in fact, be a blight on his soul? And I answer, yes. Yes. Did he sense that the environment of Sodom, the things he saw, the things he heard, were not wholesome food for his eye and ear gate? Again, yes. Did he ignore the warnings of God's word on associating with people of such immoral and ungodly character? And again, the answer is yes. He knew all these things and more. Okay, okay. Then how can God call him righteous? And why should we concern ourselves with Christians like this who have obviously ignored some of the basic tenets of the faith. The answer is this. God can call Lot righteous because righteousness before God is his gift credited to sinners by faith on the merit of Jesus' blood and righteousness. We are not righteous in and of ourselves. Lot was not righteous in and of himself. We are declared righteous by God when, he, when we personally are not righteous. And God sees us as righteous because he sees us as being what we are, Paul says, in Christ. In Christ. Paul words it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. Wonderful text. It is because of him, God, that you are in Christ Jesus, right, okay, who has become for us wisdom from God. Now, if you just stop there, we say, okay, Christ is our wisdom. Just wonderful. He doesn't stop there. He explains what he means by wisdom from God. It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Christ is all those things for us. Given to us as a gift from God. But personally, personally, we do not always 
live out our position in Christ. We do stupid things. We do sinful things. And so sometimes we need clear-headed fellow believers to pull us from the fire of our own making, which is Lot and Sodom. This is not only necessary, but it is commendable. Let me read it for you. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the faith, and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. That's said about a brother going out after a brother who's wandered from the faith and bringing that brother back. Abraham pleaded for Lot when he kept reducing the number from 50 to 45, 35, 30, 20, down to 10, with the hope that God would spare Sodom to save Lot. But you know what happened? God actually destroyed Sodom and spared Lot. And in a large part, in answer to Abraham's feverish appeal. We're not only saved by grace, but we carry on and live the Christian life by grace. And if God's grace, in God's grace, you may be, you may be the very impetus that God uses to stir a wayward brother to repent and get back on the right track. Have you ever thought of that? Do not undervalue your role in edifying fellow believers in Christ. We need the warnings. We need the rebukes. We need the corrections. We need the instruction so that we do not get caught in sin and compromised as was thought. And let me say in closing today that if you're here today or out in Radio Land, lost and adrift with your own sinful thoughts, arguing with God, resisting His Spirit, opposing the truth, proud of you, but ashamed of Jesus the Lord. Listen to Jesus' warning. If anyone is ashamed of me, in my word, in this, what? In this adulterous and sinful generation, you're ashamed of me? The Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the Holy. You're struggling with Christ's words, but you can accept the words and the teachings of an adulterous and sinful generation. There's something wrong with your thinking. 
Jesus says, in the end, it'll be you that's the sheep. You never want Christ to be ashamed of you before the Father. You want him pleading your case, mediating for you, wrapping his arms around you, protecting you from the wrath to come, which he has promised for every believer. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the lessons of this text. There are many. Help us as believers to help each other as believers. When we sin, and we do, certainly do, when we wander from the faith, may a brother or sister in true love be able to restore us, be able to come to us, admonish us, correct us, instruct us, help us. Poor Lot, boy, what a testimony, what a poor testimony this man had, even with his own family. He had compromised and compromised and compromised, made excuse after excuse, justified in his own mind why he should live in Sodom. To the point where his own family members thought him to be a jokester to warn of, of judgment to come. We have to live, Lord, what we teach and preach, and I pray that you'll help us to do that. And when we don't, may we be brought back through a loving rebuke and kindness. We do pray for the lost today whose thinking with regard to this world is adulterous and sinful. And I pray, Lord, that you will forgive our country. Just this week, terrible, terrible decisions by the Supreme Court that will have dire consequences on America. I pray that you will forgive us, and I pray that you will help us to amend these things, set them right. Thank you for each one here. Thank you for the operation of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for his convicting work. When he makes us miserable, that's good. When he draws us to the feet of Christ, that's good. May your spirit grant faith and grant repentance to stubborn and incorrigible hearts this day. Add more sheep to your sheepfold, more children to your family. We pray for the glory of Christ and their good. Wonderful hymn, it says, In the hour of trial, 